welcome everyone. Um, this is Big Tent and it's our spotlight speaker. We're welcoming Dahlia Lithwick this evening, which is very exciting. Big Tent is a group of uh, nonprofit, it's a group of women who um, focus on democracy and educate and activate and have a lot of great a lot of great programs. So we hope you'll join us in them coming up. Um, I want to introduce Dahlia Lithwick, um, who is, as most of you probably already know, a regular contributor on MSNBC. She's a senior editor of Slate, and she's been writing the Supreme Court Dispatches column and Jurisprudence column for more than 20 years now. Uh, she's the host of an award-winning bi-weekly podcast, Amicus, which enables us all to listen to her night and day, For as Donna was saying. Um, and in what I consider a stroke of genius, Dahlia um, started her legal career out after clerking on the Ninth Circuit, doing family law in Reno, Nevada, which is like, why I didn't think of that, I'll never know. And then, but after that, she's gone into writing and her writing has won numerous awards. Um, she's the first online journalist to be invited to be on the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And she's the author of, um, co-author of many books and the author of Lady Justice, which is superb. If you haven't read it, you should read it right away. Um, and we welcome her here tonight and thank her so much for joining us. Um, so we have lots of questions, um, to put it mildly. Um, and I wanted to start out, if we could, talking um, about your book. It's fantastic that so many women step, stepped up and stepped forward. And when did you first realize that it was the women who were stepping forward? First of all, thank you. I want to thank Vanessa. I want to thank Wendy. I want to thank um, so many uh, friends that I'm seeing in this room. It's really special. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, when we were in the green room just before we started, it's so gratifying to be having these conversations after the midterms went the way the midterms went, because it comes with a nice side of I told you so, uh, which is that, you know, women were not um, going to get over row or be, you know, fine, fine, fine after uh, a couple of weeks. And it's it's nice to be vindicated in that. So I think the, um, the the short answer to the question is I started writing the book in 2017 when I was really finding that the lawsuits that pervaded every minute of my life as a legal journalist in the Trump era, um, really out of all proportion to what seemed mathematically likely, uh, were being led by a lot of women. Women were sort of stepping into the breach. I think that I was seeing the same energy that was brought to the Women's March, uh, you know, around the time of inauguration, that energy was being brought to courtrooms too. It was just, uh, I think, slightly dorkier. It took a long time to unfold. But I think one of the first stories I tell in the book is of the Muslim ban, which Donald Trump had run for office, promising that he would put a stop to Muslim entry into the country and was one of the first things he did after inauguration. And I sort of tell the story of how it was very manifestly clear to me that the tale of lawyers showing up at airports, whether it was SFO, whether it was LaGuardia, whether it was Kennedy, whether they were in Dallas uh, or wherever they were, the lawyers who dropped everything 
and showed up and sort of held up signs that said to refugees and asylum seekers and people who were lawful, you know, uh, uh, permit holders uh, of immigration documents, but who had lost status on their flight as they came over because the travel ban was signed, were overwhelmingly women. And it was really striking to me both that, again, it was not 50% of the lawyers who showed up in airports. It was much more were women. And four of the five judges who enjoined the travel ban in the first 48 hours were women. And so I think that planted this seed of an idea in my head, which sort of shoots through the book and shoots through this moment we find ourselves in now, which is that this foundationally different from the women in Iran who are putting their bodies on the streets to protest. That's astonishing. I mean, it's breathtaking. But this was women who went into court with like a blue book and a yellow pen and the ability to file for an injunction. And that that is access to power that shouldn't be taken for granted because it's not just bodies on the street. It's prevailing time and time in courts of justice. And so I think I wanted to lift up that story as an alternate path to success and to democracy repair. It was great. I mean, it did. I think it occurred to a lot of us that it just seemed disproportionate, but the your book takes it a step further. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, in the book, you talk about your story with Kaczynski and your experience and on the anniversary of Me Too. Um, I thought I'd raise that as under the, I guess, under the guise of asking why more people don't step forward, which is a tough question. You know, I think so. So for folks who don't know, um, one of the things that I was involved in, um, again, around this time, 2017, 2018, uh, was a bunch of women who had clerked for a very, very prominent, the former chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, Alex Kaczynski, deeply, deeply respected legal mind, who also sort of was known, it's with sort of an open secret on the courts, that he was known for showing porn to clerks and he was known for talking abusively uh, and treating women in, in inappropriate ways, but everybody sort of shrugged it off and said, that's just him being him. And uh, I had known all this myself. I was the beneficiary of it when I was a law clerk, uh, right out of law school, months out of law school. And uh, I had told nobody for decades uh, because it was not good for my career to say something. And so I watched as a group of incredibly brave women who, by the way, were younger than I, who uh, came forward uh, on the record using their names and said, in the midst of Me Too, there are federal jurists, lifetime appointed Article Three jurists who do a lot of these same things. And uh, the legal system, the judiciary seems to have no mechanism for doing anything about it, neither for investigating nor for findings of facts, uh, nor for disciplining. And how paradoxical that the same judges who are in charge of deciding what is sexual harassment, what is you know gender uh, disparity are the people who can't seem to police themselves. And so I became one of the first people who came forward and there was an investigation launched and Judge Kaczynski stepped down uh, after a few people had come forward, by the end of this truncated period, 14 women, I think, came forward, putting their names on the record. 
the minute he stepped down, I know we're going to talk about Justice Kavanaugh, the investigation stops. There's no investigation. So he collects his lifetime pension and there will never be any findings of facts uh, about what he did or did not do. Um, tiny coda, just for those who haven't been keeping track, Judge Kaczynski popped up two weeks ago because he's now one of Donald Trump's lawyers. He is representing Donald Trump in a fight uh, uh, around the First Amendment. And, and one of the things that Judge Kaczynski, former Judge Kaczynski, put in his pleading is a comparison of Trump to Galileo and great historically misunderstood figures because Trump probably will be proven right both on COVID and on the stolen 2020 election. So in case anyone thinks there are consequences, there's the opposite of consequences, right? You just hang out a shin shingle and go forward. So the very brief answer to the second part of your question is, at the time the piece I wrote was not meant to be a Me Too piece, it was a piece about complicity. It was a piece about how it was possible that every journalist, every judge on the Ninth Circuit, every district court judge in California, every law clerk who ever worked for him, law professors who said to students, don't go clerk for him, you'll be sorry, nobody stepped forward. And so what I thought was a meditation on, and this is your question, why nobody comes forward, why it is so seemingly impossible, even for people 20, 30 years out of law school to do the right thing, is a meditation on the sort of closed loop of, of the legal academy and of the judiciary and all the ways in which if we can't be brave about this, some of the folks who came forward were judges, some of the folks who came forward were litigators, you know, decades into careers, then how can we expect other people to be brave? So I think it got, there was a category error where the piece got characterized as a Me Too piece. To me, it was a much more complicated set of questions about why it took me 20 years to say what I knew. Yeah, I, I mean, there definitely is a, a code of silence that you're taught as a clerk. And when you're part of that world that it's, you know, it's it's sort of the response you heard around the leak of Do the Dobbs decision is like, how could this have happened? It's so remarkable that any slip of paper should leave the courthouse. It's I mean, there really is a sense that people have where they buy in 100 percent. And in that way, they're legitimizing bad behavior. Um, I would say that I think I'm putting my money on karma because I think Trump routinely stiffs every attorney. So Kaczynski will likely not get paid. So um, I want to uh, come back to the ethics issues with the court, but I want to ask one more question about your book first. Um, so in the book that starts out as being about all these amazing women litigators who are changing law through really important um, court cases, you shift to voting rights and profile to phenomenal women and and not just individuals, but a, a way of, of approaching voting rights. And I wanted to ask you about that, what shift um, occurred. I, I mean, I think the 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 quickie answer is that um, there's a tiny bit of like eat your Brussels sprouts, right? That you bake the really arcane, the stuff toward the end of the book is is complicated, right? You're talking about malapportionment and redistricting and what you do about one person, one vote. Some of that stuff is very, very hard to explain. And so I think there was a tiny part of me that was like, if I start with these cool, like, law and order stories that just talk about lawsuits, people will hopefully be interested enough when we get to the pretty complicated 
questions about vote suppression and um, redistricting. So that's that's part of the answer. I think the other answer really is that the second half of the book largely came together after January 6th. And I think one of the things that I realized was you can win all the lawsuits in the world and lose democracy. It's not enough to win lawsuits. It's a lot. And the women in the book, I mean, no means suggesting that what they did was not heroic, the women who litigated their way to um, massive wins. But it became manifest to me that people like Vanita Gupta, who was at the head of the leadership conference at the time, uh, people like Stacey Abrams, who built this massive, massive voting rights coalition uh, to fight vote suppression in Georgia, were actually doing justice work as much as, if not more so, the people who were in lawsuits. And so I think I slightly wanted to broaden the aperture from just the kinds of legal stories we're used to hearing, because they get a lot of, lot of attention in the press, to the kinds of legal stories we don't hear a ton about. And maybe just one final note on that. The book begins with Polly Murray, who is the most important civil rights litigator and activist that no one's ever heard of. And for folks who um, don't know about Polly Murray, I just, I cannot tell you, I am drunk on Polly Murray uh, because Polly Murray writes what becomes the Brown versus Board of Education brief and gets no credit for it. Murray writes it as a law school paper at Howard University. Um, and Polly Murray, by the way, is at H Howard University because her first choice university will not allow her in uh, because she's a woman. Polly Murray goes to UNC undergrad because, uh, or is not allowed to go to UNC undergrad because they will not let her in because she's black. So Polly Murray, throughout an entire astonishing life of having doors closed, still manages to do this foundational, life-altering uh, justice work that gets no credit. Justice Ginsburg credited Polly Murray in one of the first briefs to use the 14th Amendment for gender equality and puts Polly Murray's name on the brief, even though Polly Murray didn't participate in the case formally, as a way of saying, like, I stand on your shoulders, this is your work. But I went to law school for three years and nobody said the words Polly Murray to me. And most of us, I think, have never heard of Polly Murray. There should be a law library across every law school in the nation devoted to this person. And so my theory of the case, and it's a little bit the answer to your question, is that women do democracy work often without fanfare. Often it takes decades. Often it is in huge groups. Often there's no credit, right? I'm sitting in front of my RBG, like, you know, throw pillow. You know, it's just, there's no tote bags. There's no mugs. There's just work. And I wanted to use both Polly Murray and you know, the organizers you describe at the end of the book, whose names might not be household names, as avatars for the way women build power, which I think is fundamentally different from the way men build powder, power. And I think it's also fundamentally unrecognized. Yeah. Um, so one of the, uh, Vanessa Thomas from Big Tent observed earlier today in our group chat that it's amazing how our government now needs to protect us from the Supreme Court. She wrote this after seeing the Senate pass the um, the the um, bill to protect same-sex mar marriage and interracial marriage. And to that end, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the court and why we need protection from it lately. Um, so there's some, just as far as the institution goes, there's a common mis, 
misconception, which is that you're appointed for life. In fact, the justices are appointed for um, good behavior. And how did that how does how did that sort of morph into for life and what is good behavior for a justice? I mean, it's an interesting doctrinal question that doesn't un- unfortunately doesn't go the way we want it to go, which is I think that there was at one point the idea that good behavior is in the Constitution means there's a lesser threshold than impeachment that by which justices are bound, right? That it's something beyond high crimes and misdemeanors that could have them removed. But I think at least in in the last century, it's been clear that good behavior doesn't have sort of independent legal force as a mechanism to remove people. And rightly or wrongly, we have used the standard of impeachment, high crimes and misdemeanors, and good behavior has become kind of constitutional wallpaper. You know, it has no independent force, even though I think you're quite right. I think that language is there for a reason. Uh, And we generally believe that, you know, words are not randomly thrown around uh, without meaning. But the the effort to get that codified into some kind of standard um, has has largely, I think, fallen away. Um, I will say that I think some of the elements of good behavior that you raise are built into the ethics rules. And so I know we're going to talk in a minute about what we have formally codified canons and statutes for judicial behavior that apply to every lifetime Article Three judge on the federal bench, except the nine justices on the Supreme Court. But I do think one of the ways to resolve the problem you're raising is what what is less than, um, you know, high crimes and misdemeanors that is kind of quantifiable as bad behavior. And I think that the ethical canons were meant to be a check on that to enforce that. But the fact is we have nine justices for whom those rules are advisory. I think the um, chief justice recently said we consult them, uh, but they're not bound by them and they can't be enforced against the justices. So that's the slightly depressing answer to your question. Even if they are baked into the canons, it does us no good if the canons can't be enforced as against the justices. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be a strong impetus on the part of um, the Chief Justice to do much about it. Um, so let's talk about the ethics codes. There, do you think there should be a change of the ethics codes, or what's the what's the solution? I mean, I think one of the things that I think is regrettable about President Biden's, you know, he he put together a st- structural court reform commission. It did really laudable work that year. And we in the press treated it as though it was this binary about court packing or not court packing. Actually, the commission did an immense amount of research on a whole host of questions that weren't just adding seats to the court or jurisdiction stripping or uh, doing away with lifetime tenure. And all of the stuff that they put in the final report on ethics reform is really good. (laughs) And so one of the things I tell people is don't start at the like, improbable scenarios start at the achievable things. And the ethics reforms, the transparency reforms, the recusal rules, the fact that the justices routinely sit on cases where they have financial holdings, routinely, as we've seen now uh, with Justice Thomas, are sitting in on a case uh, that directly implicates the conduct of his wife on January 6th and will not recuse. Um, Those things have to be uh, strengthened 
And they have to be, as as I just said, applied to the justices themselves. Now, the justices say that's a separation of powers problem, that you can't force, uh, Congress can't force the court um, to, to take on ethics rules. And I just talked to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse on the podcast about this. I don't think it's a separation of powers problem, but I also think Justice Kagan recently promised we're going to construct ethics rules for ourselves that we will abide by and we've never seen them. The very last piece of this that I think is really important for people who are trying to figure out how they feel about you know the news last week that Justice Alito was being lobbied by big donors who paid money you know to go to cocktail parties with the justices and lobby them about religious liberty cases. All of this stuff is violates the ethics rules because the ethics canons don't say don't be bad. They say the appearance of impropriety. So that a litigant who walks into your courtroom doesn't think that you're in the tank for one side or the other. So this is not a test about how Justice Alito feels about his dinner parties or how Justice Thomas feels. This is how it looks to the rest of us. So to me, when you hear the justices sort of balking at, you know, public opinion ratings that are in the 30s, lowest in history, and blaming the public, those ethics rules are constructed so that the public has confidence in the court. And the way the ethics rules are constructed, as I understand it, is there's a, they can't accept more than, I don't know, a, a, a gift of, let's say, $100. I don't, it might be 300 whatever it is. But there's no cap on accepting um, uh, if someone hosts you. So I can host a justice on a round the world tour on my private jet, as I understand it, as long as I don't give more than $100 worth of M&Ms as a gift or something. It's so it's, And the rationale is that they're allowed to have friends, which is really like uh, it's it's just kind of insane. But that to me creates a tremendous appearance of impropriety. I mean, this was Scalia used to his hunting trip on which he unfortunately died was an annual event that may or may not have been a host. You know, he was hosted on. But there and he's not alone. It's I mean, they're these stories go way back um, as far as appearances of impropriety go. But that just has to change, it seems to me. Uh, I mean, I think that we are in a really, and this is just panning back a little, but I think we're in a really perilous moment for the court because we're seeing these approval ratings that are at historic lows. And then we see the justices respond to that by flying around the country, going to closed door, you know, high donor functions for, you know, groups with business before the court and excoriating the press, right, by name or excoriating the legal academy by name. So the exact wrong thing to do here is shoot the messenger. The exact right thing to do, and believe it or not, it's not a hard thing to do, is conform your behavior to the ethics codes. It's not hard for the justices to just not accept junkets. It's not hard. The justices to uh, disclose publicly whether they have financial or familial interests in the outcomes of cases. And I think it's such an interesting problem to me because it's been posited um, with increasing, I think, fervor by the justices as, you know, you just don't like the outcomes in these cases and that's why you're going after the court. But I don't think this is about outcomes. I think this is about process. And when the court is deciding huge numbers of cases on the so-called shadow docket, right? That's the emergency docket where you get a midnight order 
three sentences unsigned. You don't even know which justices participated in the vote. That's how they decided remain in Mexico. That's how they decided the eviction moratorium. That's how they decided SB8, the Texas abortion law last year, right? In a couple of sentences, we don't know what the doctrine is. When the press and the public start to complain, you get the justices punching back. And it's not, you know, the, the answer for the court is so simple, which is show your work, right? You've got one superpower, which is show your work, and you will be deemed legitimate. And for the court to want to do, as you're saying, these secret hunting trips, you know, these secret um, conclaves, you know, they got standing ovations at the Federalist Society two weeks ago, you know, and you want to be involved in like partisan legal things and not be criticized because you think it's a secret. I just think that the the peril here, and, and I want to be super clear about this, those of us who are criticizing the processes the court is using to do its business are not doing it just because we don't like the outcomes in cases. It's because the only legitimacy the court has, right? Go back and read the Federalist Papers. It's public approval. They have neither the purse nor the sword. They don't have an army. They don't have a budget. They have nothing except public opinion. And for the court to squander it <laughs> and to squander it and then turn around and blame the public who is balking, I think it's just such a profoundly short-sighted move where the easy answer is just behave like judges. Um, One of the things this court has done, which is not about their behavior as such, um, is how they decide um, cases. And there's been a movement towards gutting precedent um in the you know in the last term there was um or at least all but gutting precedent there there was a fourth amendment case um first amendment case and i thought maybe you could talk about that a little bit because it seems to have taken a real turn yeah and it's one of the you know one of the things i've been saying um this fall in going into the Supreme Court term is that one of the massive, I think almost catastrophic errors that we who cover the court have been making is we cover cases. So we're like, oh, next week, you know, is the independent state legislature case. And next week is, you know, uh, 303 creative, the LGBTQ case. And we cover the cases as though they're the story. And we fly out to Colorado, right? And we interview the parties and we talk about precedent. And what we don't do is talk about all the other stuff (laughs) that are the trends and themes of the term, right? So if you think about, you know, the last two days of the Supreme Court term, the New York Times will do those good charts about, you know, which justices agreed with which justice. And you get a kind of beginning of the beginning of a story of the arc of the whole term, but really very little. And I think one of the stories of last term was exactly what you are saying, which is the eviscerating of precedent in case after case after case, right? Whether it was Dobbs, you know, the doing away, I mean, explicitly overturning precedent or Bruin, the gun case, which is explicitly uh, changing precedent or the, you know, doing away of essentially the lemon test, you know, for, for, um, First Amendment purposes, um, saying things like the major questions doctrine, which is a thing that nobody even understands because it should be doctrine in quotation marks, somehow blows up, you know, how we think about um, how agency rules um, are, are um, promulgated. And so it was case after case after case after case last term where the court just either did away with the test or changed the test without telling us what the new test was. But in no 
strong case other than in Dobbs, where they just expressly said Roe was wrong when it was decided it's wrong today, do they tell us what they're doing? And so I think when I was talking about the shadow docket, sort of moves that are done in the dark, one of the moves that are done in the dark, and we're really, I know we're going to talk about this case in a minute, we're really seeing this with Moore v. Harper, which is the independent state legislature case out of North Carolina. But we are seeing briefs that are citing to uh, an opinion that got one or two votes in Bush v. Gore, as though that's a majority opinion, as though that's binding precedent on the court. And that move is playing out now in the lower courts, where we're seeing judges cite to things that got one vote to a Scalia dissent, to a Thomas Mm -hmm. dissent that commanded two votes, and pretend that's precedent. So there's like a million reasons why this is a problem and we don't need to belabor them. But what I will say is if you think about why we are bound by precedent, it's not just the appearance that the court willy-nilly makes, you know, <laughs> a new member of the court means that the law changes. It's that so people can organize their lives around knowing what the law is and what comes next. And it is quite literally not possible now if you are, say, a school district trying to figure out whether a coach can pray sectarian prayer at the 50-yard line on a football game. I don't know what the test is. If you're the EPA and you're trying to figure out after the EPA case what the new rule is, I have no idea. I don't know actually what the new rule is in Bruin for uh, gun laws. And we're seeing courts around the country scrambling, trying to craft what the new precedent is. And so I think that there's not just that we rely on it for the stability of the law, but so people can organize their lives around a legal principle. And when the court does away with precedent or treats you know, a minority position as though it's binding legal authority and doesn't tell us what's coming next, there's a whole world of uncertainty, which is the opposite of the rule of law. Yeah, no, it's it's very, it's very, very troubling. Um, So let's talk, speaking of troubling, let's talk about Moore versus Harper. And I loved your, um, your podcast with Michael Lodig, which was phenomenal. Um, But if you could talk about the case a little bit, I know in Big Tent, we've had a number of um, people come and speak about it, but it's, it's extremely complicated. And it's, there's a lot of, um, a, a lot of confusion about it. But I mean, I I think it's no exaggeration, Wendy, to say it's the most important case that nobody's paying attention to. And that's because it's arcane and complicated. And it's also because it feels so theoretical and abstract that it's really hard to sort of pin it to meaningful outcomes. So the short, the very short version is this is a case, as with so many cases this term, that just has to do with a gerrymander with a North Carolina gerrymander uh, that uh, new maps are are drawn and the state of North Carolina says, you know what, we don't accept that the state Supreme Court has jurisdiction over us because state legislatures have, okay, plenary, that means unreviewable power to set elections. And so essentially what they are saying is that any state legislature can set election proceedings and it cannot be checked by the state Supreme Court, we're not even talking about federal courts, but by the state Supreme Court, and that the governor or other state actors that seemingly also have independent checking powers also have no control. The legislature wins every time. The very extreme version of this is 
kind of the thing that you all were seeing in the 2020 election when Donald Trump's calling around to Brad Raffensperger and to elections officials in Pennsylvania and saying, you know, the legislature can just set, you know, whatever policies you want. You can give us a, your own slate of electors. It doesn't even matter who what the slate of electors is. Just cough up your own slate of electors. That's the really extreme version. And I should note, this is a doctrinally complicated case because part of it is rooted in the electors clause. Part of it is rooted in the election clause. There's some parts that sweep in federal elections. There's some part that are just state elections. But of course, state legislatures um, control both. But the very, very, very worrisome idea that's being promulgated, and this is a case, it goes to your original question, that is rooted in a ranquist plurality opinion. It got three votes in Bush v. Gore, three. And it's being held out that Rehnquist sort of floated the idea in one of the Bush v. Gore cases that maybe the Florida Supreme Court didn't have the authority to tell the Florida state legislature what to do. It's not a majority opinion. It's not doctrine. It's not the law. It was in a case that, by the way, was good for one right only. And that's being sort of lauded as the birth of this idea that, in fact, has no constitutional support, no historical support, and not even doctrinal support. And the really scary part of this case, if I haven't scared you enough, is that we already have four justices on the U.S. Supreme Court who've evinced real interest in the, the independent state legislature theory. And the, in the run-up to the 2020 election, we had uh, Alito, Alito, Kavanaugh, uh, Gorsuch, and um, Thomas, all think this is a really interesting theory. So this may rise and fall with the views of Amy Coney Barrett, who has not yet opined on one of these cases. But I think that the notion that state courts can do, state legislatures, which we know how malapportioned and how broken they are, can do whatever they want without a check by the state Supreme Court, is so profound, not just going into the sort of next presidential election cycle, but going into any future elections. And we should all be on fire about this. But like, I just took what, six minutes to explain it. And there's just no way I think to make clear to people how dangerous it is. Well, the implications of this case, even for other you know, what could happen afterwards as far as um, doing away with uh, ballot initiatives and things like that, that people have said could could follow from it are really, I mean, it's it's explosively troubling. I don't know how else to put it, but it is it is very scary. Um, so here's another small question. <laughs> how do we restore democracy? What do you think are the most crucial steps to take and can it be done and a three three minutes use three Um, blue books go ahead uh, i mean i think i think that this is the silver lining to dobbs and this is the silver lining to the midterms right i think that in some sense dobbs was a natural experiment in how far you could push minority rule and for a lot of people who looked around after dobbs came down or bruin the gun case came down and said, how is it possible that 80% of the population, 76%, whatever, don't want this thing and we're getting it? And the answer to that question is really a very complicated story to tell about how in many ways this is a two-century-old minority rule system 
operating exactly as it was designed to operate, right? That's why there's an electoral college that massively distorts, right, electoral outcomes. That's why there is a wildly malapportioned Senate that massively distorts electoral outcomes, right? And that's why you have a Supreme Court where five of the six conservative justices were seated by presidents who lost the popular vote, ratified by a Senate that does not reflect majority opinion, and who then, as a majority, turn around and constrict voting rights the way they did in Shelby County, the -hmm. way they did in Brnovich, the way they're going to do in Morvey Harper. So I think this was a really bracing wake-up call that if you want to have 20% of the population or less, I would say, in a lot of these areas, um, kind of using the levers of power, whether it's the judiciary or the Senate or malapportioned state houses, you are going to keep losing. And it goes back to my sort of initial framing point. That's how you lose democracy. I think that the really fascinating thing to me was the blowback to that was the midterm elections, not only where, you know, women showed up, sorry, pollsters, and, you know, um, Gen Z showed up, sorry, vote suppression, and people really were engaged and invested in a midterm, but also that every single state where abortion was on a referendum, a direct referendum, it won, including in Ruby Red State. So I think one of the lessons here is if you do democracy correctly, you'll win. Your ideas will win. If you either kind of go on snooze button or kind of tell yourself stories about the magical court in the sky that is good for, you know, all dignity and justice and they're like great oracles in a vat, you're going to keep losing. And so for me, and I want to kind of connect this back to what I said, which is I've covered the court for 22 years. Nobody is sadder to see the court's popularity ratings in the in the 30s because we don't have a better thing <laughs> than the rule of law. And I sort of say in the book, and I've said throughout um, uh, promoting the book, you know, the, the, the alternative to the rule of law, um, Anita Hill says this in the book, is chaos. And women and vulnerable minorities and immigrants and LGBTQ kids are not going to prevail in the absence of plan A, which is rule of law. So we need to really take seriously the repair and reform of democracy. But my my sort of hope is that I think a lot of folks who were walking around for 50 years saying, oh, abortion is a protected right in the United States, didn't know that if you were a Black woman in Mississippi, at least from the minute the Hyde Amendment happened, you did not have a right to abortion. Yeah. You did not have a right to abortion if you were on a reservation in Oklahoma. So good. Now we can all see that those were a lot of myths and stories we told ourselves. And that the work really is, I think, and this is existential work and it's decades of work. But like one of the reasons I wrote the book is I think it is doable, perfectible work, but it's just not a spectator sport. Um, Do you have any insights into the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment? No, just that I think there's new energy. I mean, I think that there is a a very uh, strong set of lessons that in hindsight, you know, there are things we should have done differently. And fighting for the ERA is one of them. And codifying Roe, by the way, is one of them. And, you know, there's a whole set of things we could have done differently. And the ERA certainly is one of them. And I do think there's new, meaningful new energy, despite constitutional, really tricky constitutional questions about, um, you know, which states count and how to count them. But I will say this. I think that we sometimes get 
caught up in this trap of doing hindsight. And we tell ourselves, you know, oh, if we had just rooted Roe versus Wade in equal protection and not in privacy, you know, maybe Justice Alito would have been on our team in Dobbs. Like, I just think we love to beat ourselves up for bad tactics without reckon, really reconciling ourselves to the fact that this has been a losing fight for 200 years because women didn't have the vote then. They did, were not there to draft uh, the founding documents. They were property, right, and chattel right up until very recently. And so I think that to get in the game of if we had put more force behind X or Y or Z, and that's why we're losing, I think gives away a lot of power. I would rather just say, and I've been saying this to anyone who will listen, I actually think like the privacy protections that are protected in Roe v. Wade and Griswold and Obergefell are themselves worth fighting for. And that I think there are really solid, sound, meaningful arguments that we do not make about why they should have been rooted in the due process and privacy, substantive due process clauses. So I would rather see us kind of bravely defending <laughs> the moves we've made rather than constantly beating ourselves up because if maybe we had done it differently, we would be winning now. So um, I'm looking at some of the questions that have been put out there. Mary Himes um, asks, uh, that, or notes, that you mentioned that women get and use power differently than men. Can you explain that? And is Nancy Pelosi an example of what you're saying? That's such a, it's such a great question, Mary. I mean, I think if I'm right about women in the law in the book, it's certainly not just true of women who practice law. Uh, you know, every day it's about women who use, um, you know, constitutional tools to uh, get power. And I think uh, Speaker, I guess, former Speaker Pelosi is such a high like manifestation of that use of power. And one of the things that I argue in the book and like fight me in the chat, if you want, is that I think that women and other minorities, this is certainly true of people of color, and it is certainly true of LGBTQ Americans and so many vulnerable groups, have always lived with this split screen of both being in power and knowing what it's like to not have power. And Pelosi is certainly an example of that. And one of the things that I have argued in the book, and I continue to argue, is that the reason that Dobbs was so visceral for so many women is because it's so strange to go in a heartbeat from the law has been an ordering force in my life. It is the thing that gives me equality. It's the reason my grandmother could have a credit card in her own name eventually. It's the reason, you know, there is a, a, a rape exception, a marital rape exception, right? All of these things are because of the law. But the law is also the thing that is putting women in Alabama in prison right now because they're endangering their babies, right? And a woman in Oklahoma in prison right now uh, for a, a miscarriage that the state deems was because she used drugs. So I think that what I'm trying to argue is that the veil between the law as an instrument of power and equality and the law as a mechanism for oppression and control is really thin. I think we thought it was a very thick membrane because we all, you know, most of us came of age at a time where it felt like there's no looking back. We're never going back to, you know, back alley abortions and women and their doctors going to jail. Well, okay, now we've gone back. And I think that what Speaker Pelosi, I mean, in so many ways has represented to me, in addition to just, you know, all the ways that she uses soft power, Mary, you know, in terms of um, 
you know, listening carefully and saying the right thing and being just such a deft, deft organizer. But I think in addition to that, she was modeling for me throughout the Trump years, a deep awareness that you could live on the other side of that curtain, you know, that that people could be threatening lock you up at Pelosi, you know, that people could threaten to and in fact, break into her home and try to kill her husband. And I think that for any woman who's kind of moved through the world with that fear that the world could turn on you in that way. And maybe this goes to like Wendy's very, very first question. I think leaping into action in the days after Trump was inaugurated, because this is familiar. We remember this in our bones is a thing that I think Pelosi, if you look back over, you know, her time, certainly um, in the Trump era. And I just have to just say, the most transcendent moment of that was on January 6th, just like watching her peel open like a you know, <laughs> slim gym and like, rah, 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 rah. it was just the most amazing um, manifestation of just sort of like power, awareness, you know, complete understanding and command of the situation. And so I don't know if it's it's a great answer, but I think my sense of this thing is, and I, and I wanna be clear, I, I always try to be really clear about this, any book where you're essentializing is fundamentally wrong, right? Because I don't want to say like no men were in the legal resistance. Every woman in this book had 10 men working on her team and there were so many men I couldn't begin. So I don't want to say like this is all women have, you know, this relationship to law and power or that no men do. But I think I want to say that for a lot of women who thought their lives were going to look one way and suddenly in 2016, it looked another they leapt into the law as a force for protection. And I think Nancy Pelosi is like such an avatar for that. She's amazing. Um, so uh, Donna Moffley asks, um, I think it's a type of dumb Quentin. I think that's, <laughs> but why do you say women are in the minority? I thought there were more women than men in the US plus they have more money. Um, I hope I didn't say women were in the minority, did I? Maybe, maybe you didn't. Maybe. Um, I mean, clearly, statistically, they are in the in the majority, and as voters, uh, they are in the majority. Uh, I think I'm, I'm. I can't even remember why I would have. I don't. I, I don't yeah, think I, don't. I said it. And if I, I, I will say. I mean, I think one of the things, and I and I tee this up in the book. I graduated from law school at a time where women were fifty percent of my law school class. And we are still not even close to parity in big law firms. We're not close to parity in Congress, in the Senate, it's state Supreme Court. So women are both, you know, at this point, the majority in their law school, cl school classes and not breaking a glass ceiling that I think we expected to break. I mean, Anita Hill says in the book, she expected to break it, you know, when she graduated from law school too. So I think in one sense, and only in that sense, we're in the minority in terms of having commensurate access to power as men, but in I, I don't I, I don't think that translates into voting. So a number of people are asking what your thoughts are on expanding the court to um, 13 justices um, in line with the number of districts or circuits or or any rationale for having 13. I have very reluctantly come round to court expansion because I don't think there's another solution. 
And, um, you know, it's important to remember there's nothing nine is not in the Constitution. There have been six members of the Supreme Court historically and eight, and the numbers have gone up and down historically. There's nothing that says, um, you know, that that it's that number is frozen in amber. And so I actually am fine with having the same number of seats at the court that align with the number of circuit courts. That was how this was supposed to work. Um, and there's no reason not uh, to map that onto how it's supposed to work. Here's the other thing I think about court expansion. I genuinely believed a year ago that in the face of massive public disapproval, the court was going to pump the brakes last term. And I was on record saying after SB8, like they're not going to go big on guns and go big on religion and go big on abortion and go big on the EPA and go big on, um, you know, diminishing prisoner rights. They can't do this all. And I was wrong. Um, They really went big on everything. And the thing that I thought was the breaking mechanism on the court, and this goes to some of the questions about what can we do about the court. Um, I thought public opinion actually <laughs> affected the justice's behavior. I think it affects Chief Justice Roberts' behavior, but I think he's irrelevant because there are five justices to the right of him who are not in any way uh, affected by public opinion. And in fact, I would go so far as to say, if you think about Justice Alito flying out to Rome to sort of spike the football after Dobbs, I think he actually likes the disapproval. He sees it as signaling that he's doing something right. So I I no longer have a ton of confidence that the public being mad or angry op-eds are going to get the justices to conform their view uh, of, you know, the world. So this is where I think we tell the wrong story about FDR and court packing, because we always lay that out as a story of, you know, FDR tried to do this crazy thing and the most popular president in history almost, you know, loses legitimacy and and, uh, has to pull back. Because the second part of that story is after FDR floats court expansion, we have the famous switch in time that saves nine. We have conservative justices who get off the court. We have justices who change their views, who had been striking down all the New Deal uh, legislation, suddenly saying, oh, wait, I suddenly I love it. It's constitutional. So I actually think that when we tell that story as like a failed um, piece of, of power, I think that's a really interesting story about, you know, a, a, a kind of staring contest in which the court blinked. And my view at this point is that to take at least the threat of meaningful conversations about court expansion off the table and to be like, oh, we don't want to don't want to threaten that because God knows what will happen. Like the worst thing has happened. It's happening. It's going to continue <laughs> to happen. And so to me, it just seems like such a hollow piece of rhetoric to say there is a thing that we can do that at minimum might make them understand that we're quite serious about this. And the idea that we can't talk about that thing, much less like, you know, craft real legislation and support it is just baffling to me. And um, to the person, somebody in the chat said, I did, in fact, say women and LGBTQ you know, and other minorities. So, so that's how I said it. And you are quite right. That Thank you for the chat. Um, so can you comment on who you see as up and coming, powerful, influential women in the legal system? And how do you think they fit into the political scene in 2024? I mean, I, I think we're seeing them. I think that that the, the Michigan, the juggernaut, you know, in, in the Michigan uh, elections of these women who were 
expressly and overtly ran on reproductive freedom and expressly and overtly, you know, to your issues, ran on democracy, I think are, are just amazing. I think that, again, I think we're telling the wrong story about Stacey Abrams in her race. I think that we tell that story as a story of like, womp, womp, you know, she did all that organizing and still didn't win. Stacey Abrams has been part of like a decade long campaign yeah. to rethink how you engage voters and to help voters to buy into a system that fundamentally is makes no sense for them to buy into because it's never given them anything. And so for what Stacey Abrams is doing is so absolutely sublimely important. And to I think efforts to run down all the work that those groups did is so short-sighted. So I want to sort of re-up my sense that, and this is again why you know the book lands on her that I think that we are so taken with, you know, who's the flavor of the month and we like love AOC this month and next month, you know, we're gonna love Jocelyn Benson and they're amazing, they're all amazing. But I think the real work is not the famous, you know, people who get, you know, a Kefillion Instagram followers. I think it's the people who are like, we saw it in Michigan, right? Who got that ballot initiative, who refused to see it like taken off the ballot, who knocked on doors, got more signatures than have ever been amassed in, you know, for, for an initiative. Like, I think those are the people to watch. And I think that we, you know, it, it goes back to the whole, the way we tell stories is we love stories about, you know, Jefferson and Madison and, you know, Adams, and they were so smart and wonderful and they built democracy. Like, no, no, <laughs> democracy gets built over centuries because amazing people, you know, sweat and and labor and don't get remembered. And so those are, I mean, it's so kind of the heartbeat of the book, but for me, the heartbeat of this moment we're in is that if you look at the amazing electoral results at the midterms, so much of that organizing is women. Yeah, no, I, I and for those of you who haven't yet had a chance to read Dahlia's book, especially the chapter on Stacey Abrams, it's really powerful, and I I couldn't recommend it to you strongly enough. Um, it's it's very important, and I think um, a lot of what you're saying is is goes to the the a rejection of the great man theory, which is I think is so important, especially after. Trump, and especially as we see these kind of internet bros like Musk and and Thiel trying to muscle into the political uh, arena as great men, and they're you know smarter than everyone else, so they can they can do it all. Um, so unfortunately, we're about out of time. Um, we'll ask you uh, just real quick: what books are you reading? What movies have you seen? What's your favorite thing right now? Um, so, so I think you probably got a hint of this, but I'll say it um, again. I really am obsessed right now with Dorothy Roberts, um, who has been writing about Black women and their body. You can see on my bookshelf, Torn Apart by Dorothy Roberts. Um, Peggy Cooper Davis, um, who was doing the work explaining why privacy is protected in the 14th Amendment as a standalone right. And um, I, I, just this week, an interview came down, Slow Burn, which was the Slate podcast, if someone can pop it in the chat, the Slate podcast about um, post Roe and the history of Roe. Um, this week, Peggy Cooper Davis sat down for an interview with Susan Matthews for a bonus episode. And I just think 
her work has been amazing. So I've been really reading Michelle Goodwin, uh, Black women law professors who've been telling us for 10 and 15 years, like you think all this stuff is safe. You think it will never be criminalized. You think it's not going to be your children. Um, now it is. And I just feel like, and maybe this is also the Stacey Abrams point, um, that having the scales coming off our eyes about what is in fact coming and the ways in which it will be weaponized against the poorest women, the youngest women, the women who do not have resources, who can't jump on a plane to New York City, the ways in which, and we saw this in the Indian child welfare case that was argued at the court two weeks ago, uh, wealth and whiteness are so wrongly encoded on how we think about child protective you know, uh, 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 actions and how we separate families. So I've been really kind of opening up my own sort of sense of from, you know, Polly Murray right to Dorothy Roberts, that the thing we have to keep reading and reading and reading is people like, again, Michelle Goodwin, Dorothy Roberts, who've been saying for years now, look at what's happening to Black women in America. They're the canaries in the coal mine. And so that's, I spent my summer reading that. And I cannot commend any of those um, writers more highly. Thank you so, so much. Um, we have no uh, spotlight speakers upcoming, but I um, refer you to, and maybe Vanessa can put in the chat, the Big Tent website because we have a lot of activity that's that we're planning for Georgia. So take a look at at the items to do and read the newsletter, sign up for our events. And thank you all so much. And again, Dahlia, this has been a real a real pleasure and it's been so informative. We're very appreciative of you and your coming. So thanks a lot, everyone, and have a good night. Good Stay night. well. Thank you.